Whoa, whoa, whoa. Men's rights? What are you talking about? What issues do men face? Well, we're going to get into it. Following episode 10, where I spoke with Professor Martha Rampton about modern feminism, today we're going to talk about men's issues and the men's rights movement with Ian. Ian and I go over what men's rights is fighting for, what issues are affecting men, and why men's rights and feminism oppose each other, which requires a bit of a history lesson apparently. Issues of domestic violence, family core bias, and the male suicide rate are brought up. And we also go over polarizing male figures of recent years, such as Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson. Other topics sprinkled throughout include the influence of echo chambers, communities of men, such as incels, MGTOW, or men going their own way, concepts such as privilege, and more. As always, thanks for tuning in. You can support me by subscribing to the episodes, reviewing the podcast, or giving me feedback. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. Today we are joined by Ian. Ian started his journey into men's rights as a youth worker, has been a moderator of the subreddit Men's Rights for the last five years, and has taken part in many men's rights activism activities, having written numerous letters to the New Zealand Minister of Justice fighting for the equal treatment of men across all categories of human rights. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thanks for having me. Of course. And how has being a moderator of men's rights been recently? It's been it's been interesting. Um, I've taken a little bit of a backseat recently. I've had some health problems, which you know, I've, <laughs> that's my main main focus is is getting my health right. So I've taken a bit of a backseat. But um, one of the things I do like to do is when researchers uh, contact the subreddit wanting to ask for survey participants or something like that is I I review their surveys and kind of approve or disapprove whether they can post and we've had a lot of those recently we've had like maybe seven or eight over the last couple of months very cool um, any interesting ones actually today we got one which I haven't approved yet <laughs> so it might it might not get approved I'm still thinking about it about they want participants for a focus group discussing turning people's normal cells into sperm and eggs for infertility treatments. Um, so they want to talk to people about, you know, where what they think the ethics of that are and that sort of thing, you know, so they've got an understanding how the what the public thinks about it before they get deep into the research. <laughs> we get we get all kinds of I think I think people researchers think that uh, oh we need a wide range of of view of participants. So what's some crazy subreddits we can go to <laughs> to get to get some alternative views and and they come to men's rights hmm. men's rights is definitely nowhere near as popular as feminism but from what i understand it has been growing in recent years before we really dive into men's rights do you want to quickly brief everyone on what the movement is actually concerned about right so we probably need to step back and go all the way back to what are rights Human rights is simply the idea that all human beings have the same basic rights. And, th and so when we talk about men's rights, what we're talking about is the human rights issues that affect men because they are men or disproportionately affect men. So an example of rights that affect men because they are men are things like paternity fraud, where a woman 
can write a man's name on a birth certificate, even when he isn't the father, and force him to pay child support. Now, that's something that can only happen to a man <laughs> because he's a man. So that would be an example of an infringement of a man's right to be free from forced labour. You're effectively forcing him to work to hand over money to a child that's not his. So another example of some human rights issues for men that occur because they're men are like laws that explicitly discriminate against men. So the big one in the United States is selective service, where men are required to sign up for uh, the draft or selective service and women are not. And if they don't, then they can be charged with a felony and potentially go to prison or pay like hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. And so that, that uh, men have a right not to be to equality under the law. And that's, so that's a violation of that right. Men's rights also focuses on issues that affect men disproportionately. For example, yes, yes. mental health and the suicide rate. Yeah, yes. Like, for example, uh, in just about every country in the world, men uh, die from suicide more than women. In, in Western countries, it's like a rate of three or four times the, the rate that women die at. So that's definitely a concern uh, for the re men's rights movement. So we do get into, the men's rights movement does get into social issues, but a lot of the big issues are actually come down to like very clear violations of human rights, like written into law, for example. I mean, there's, <laughs> the, when we're talking about social issues, there's a, you know, there's disagreement about whether the issue is important or, you know, what the focus should be on. But when, when it's something as clear as having laws that explicitly discriminate against men, then that's definitely a rights issue that we're concerned about. Right. And so the movement itself is essentially men or people banded together to fight for these issues. Yes. Anyone who's concerned about the men's rights issues uh, is a men's rights advocate or activist, depending on your point of view. And so the movement is just, you know, all of those people <laughs> working together. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty loose movement. Uh, there's no one big organisation or clear leader or something like that. Do you think that's potentially because of the enormous amounts of backlash the men's rights movement has faced? I mean, to be honest, most a lot of people that I reached out to, to talk about men's rights or men's issues were afraid to be doxxed online. No, I think men are just not not good at organising. <laughs> They're a little bit, little bit too uh, independent and self-reliant. And, you know, that's this is one of the situations where it kind of bites them in the ass. You outlined a few different issues that men's rights is trying to tackle specifically. What do you think are the, the greatest issues? What do you think the main focuses are? Has it changed in, in recent years? Everyone in the movement kind of has their own idea about what's important. My my focus is kind of on like explicit discrimination in the law and, and policy and things like that. I know that a lot of people are interested in like father's rights and family court and custody battles and that sort of thing. Men are, are discriminated against, you know, and worst case scenario is men can't see their kids after a separation. A lot of the people who have experienced that are really keen, you know, they've become advocates. <laughs> they want they want for family court reform, you know. And there's there's also quite a big movement of people who are against circumcision. Um, they call themselves intactivists. <laughs> um, I mean, that's mostly in America where 
it's much more prevalent. But um, from everything that you said so far, it, it all sounds extremely reasonable. I mean, you're stating pretty objective facts about issues that men face. Why do you think it has drawn so much controversy? Most feminists think that the men's rights movement is misogynistic. And I would say the average person probably agrees with that. Getting into all kind of political can of worms, my impression of the, the feminist movement idea of men's rights is that they just don't like how we're doing our advocacy. Uh, for example, when, I, when I've talked to feminists and I ask them about specific issues, um, they're basically, in, for example, um, when you ask them about the conscription or selective service, and then there's, there's plenty of feminists who, who will agree that it shouldn't be, be discrimination based on sex. You know, either we should scrap the selective service or everyone should be included. It's kind of strange that there's a lot of agreement on the issues, but then there's a lot of opposition based on, you know, accusations of, of misogyny or, or you know, basically, you know, they're telling us, well, you're doing advocacy for men wrong. You need to do it in a feminist from a feminist point of view. That's the that's the impression I get. There was an interesting study by uh, a woman called Amy Young who got people to look at scenarios of men and women interacting and then had people judge whether the man was sexist or not, whether they thought he was like a, a sexist or a misogynist or, or, or not. And the results were that when men treat women worse in this in this scenario, people correctly identified that he was being sexist. When men treated women equally, they still thought that the man was a sexist. Only when the uh, researcher said that, oh, the man is, you know, deliberately trying to treat the woman equally, did they kind of not think that the man was being sexist. So there's a tendency to see men as sexist, even when they're treating women equally. Right. I think this is also reinforced by evidence that men are often seen as perpetrators and women as victims. Because they're Yeah, having... yeah. I mean, we uh, talk about the empathy gap. Tell me about where that. Where men receive less empathy than women in society. So actually, a few weeks ago, a study came out that showed that people are more willing to accept harm done to men than done to women. Through, let's say you implement some kind of policy, let's say just hypothetically, there's a pandemic <laughs> and you need to vaccinate everybody. And the result of the vaccination program means that uh, men have a higher risk of, of developing heart problems. Just hypothetically, just imagine the scenario. Then people are more willing to accept the harm that would occur from that program if it's done to men than if it was done to women. Another study was done actually by the same researcher, which um, they told people a scenario where there was a, a, a conflict between two people. And then like a week later, they asked the participants to recall the conflict and point out which with if the 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 sexes of the perpetrator and the victim um, and now in the original scenario they didn't tell them and so when they were asked to recall the sexes that's their own kind of bias and prejudices showing and what they found that was that people would label the perpetrators male and the victims female even though, though those um you know they'd never been told that they weren't actually remembering it they were just using their kind of intuition about it mm. so so when we're talking about the empathy gap, we're talking about those kinds of things where 
less likely to be concerned about harm done to men and we're more likely to see them as um, perpetrators. Yeah, that was that was some great evidence. We did touch on feminism a bit in that previous question, but I think we should just dive straight in. The men's liberation movement was pro-feminist and that branched off apparently in the late 20th century. But men's rights seems to be pretty blatantly anti-feminist and feminism seems to be quite blatantly anti-men's rights. Why do you think this rift exists? Because some feminists, uh, I talked to Martha Rampton last week, or mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, sorry, and she seemed to be quite concerned about men's issues. Did this yeah, that's weird, isn't it? If we go back to the 70s or 80s, we can talk about the, the experience of Warren Farrell. He is considered the father of the men, modern men's rights movement, basically, and he was a hardcore feminist. He was on the board of the New York chapter of the National Organization of Women. His feminist credentials can't be denied, really. And then, and so he was getting lots of speaking engagements to talk about women's issues, and he was quite popular in the feminist movement. Then he started talking about men's issues. And all of that engagement dried up. Um, He was basically pushed out of the feminist movement. And so that's kind of the creation of the separation of the men's rights movement and the feminist movement, where people like Warren Farrell tried to raise men's issues within the feminist movement and were basically pushed out. And that's that's what I see on the men's rights subreddit. We get lots of people coming in and saying, look, I was a feminist. Then I started talking about men's issues and basically uh, they didn't like that and they pushed me out. The rift between feminism and men's rights is a result of feminists pushing men out of the feminist movement when they started, well, pushing anyone, men and women, out of the feminist movement when they started to talk about men's issues. Mm. Do you think that mainstream feminism has gone too far, has lost its way, or do you think it's never cared about men? Um, Let's talk about domestic violence and some of the history behind the domestic violence movement and as a kind of case study. So in 1971, a woman named Erin Pizzi opened the first domestic violence shelter for women in England. And she quickly discovered that the women who were using her shelter were as violent or more violent than the men that they were fleeing from. Um, So she quickly saw, okay, um, this is not a gender-specific issue. This is some an issue with relationships and trauma and other issues not specific to gender. What happened to uh, her was she, feminists pushed her out of her own organisation and threatened and harassed and bullied her for raising the issue of female violence and men's victimisation. And she actually needed to... No, the police recommended that she get her mail sent to the police first to check before it went to her because of the the harassment and bullying that she'd received. So initially back when when the first kind of beginning of the domestic violence movement started out, men Erin put men on in the picture and they were pushed out of the picture. Uh, the next kind of interesting point is in around nineteen 
1980, um, the Duluth model was created. That was the Duluth model was created in uh, uh, Duluth, Minnesota, I think, and it's a model for understanding domestic violence. And that was developed by a bunch of people working in a uh, domestic women's shelter. Uh, uh, after talking to women about their experiences of, you know, of victimization, the model is basically says that men use violence to exert power and control over women because uh, we live in a patriarchal society. Years later, one of the founding members of the Duluth model, who came up with it, actually said, Ellen Pence, she came back and said, look, actually, the women we were talking to weren't saying that. We just had that idea in our mind and we were getting confirmation bias. The, the problem with the Duluth model is that it basically eliminates male victims from the model. It's also very widely used and ends, it, it ends up in some situations, it means that when male victims call the police, they end up getting arrested rather than actually the perpetrator of the violence because the model, the model says that domestic violence is something men do to women. So from that model, from that domestic violence model, you're suggesting that feminism historically has never really cared about the issues of men or have kind of swept away the issues of men and focused on women. Yeah, so we've got we've got two we've got two points of evidence now. We've got Erin Pizzi, who brought up men in, in, in domestic violence, and we've also got the Duluth model, which excludes men, and and one of the founders saying, "Look, we didn't <laughs> we didn't actually do our research properly." Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I'm following. So you just mentioned two solid examples of when feminism has. Oh, disregarded the issues of men. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah. But do you think that feminism has created issues for men? So the Duluth model kind of came about in the 80s. And that was about the same time that we were doing, we started doing population-based surveys. And someone, and a researcher, uh, there were a few researchers, Murray Strauss was one of them, doing big population-based surveys to find out, you know, what the proportion of um, male to female victimization was for partner violence. He found that when you survey the population, rather than just talking to women in domestic violence shelters, you find that approximately equal numbers of men and women are violent to their partners. Now, he wrote a paper in about 2010 called 30 Years of Denying Gender Symmetry in Partner Violence. Something very similar to that name. <laughs> and he actually, and he documented the things feminists have done to minimise and ignore and exclude male victims and female perpetration. And it's things like hiding research results, drawing conclusions that don't match the data. And he also, in, in that paper, he talks about how he's been harassed and bullied and, you know, had his career threatened because he's bringing up ideas of female perpetrators and male victims. And he, he identifies that as, as feminists who are doing that. Now, this, this is supported by an, another paper called The Feminist Case for Acknowledging Women's Violence, which was in the Journal of the Yale Law and Feminism Journal, something like that. Abrams was the, the woman who wrote it. And she basically admits to 
that the feminist movement has what she calls a strategy of containment in terms of women's violence. Basically, that they've minimised the exposure and the um, idea that women are violent and men are victims. I mean, the, the title, title of the paper is basically saying, yes, you know, previously we've been hiding all of this, now it's time we should actually acknowledge it. So if we look at the all, all of those things, then what we have is a pattern of feminists interfering and causing damage to male victims of partner violence by all of those things like um, concealing research and harassing researchers and um, that, right. that sort of thing. So this is one, one of the reasons that the men's rights movement has a problem with the feminist movement. Right. Let me conclude that thought. So essentially you've stated feminism has not only disregarded men's rights and pushed men out of the movement, but has also hurt men in, in the process. Yes, we, we would be a lot further forward in reducing domestic violence overall and especially against men if feminists had um, not acted against it. Right. Speaking a lot on domestic violence, I want to jump into one of your letters that you wrote to the New Zealand Minister of Justice titled A Human Rights-Based Approach to Men's Rights. Um, on the topic of domestic violence, you said the HRC did not make any recommendations on behalf of male victims, despite male victims having serious issues with family violence system. In fact, the HRC recommended more services for male perpetrators while they ignored the needs of male victims. So even the systems themselves, even the justice systems themselves, discriminate against men or ignore the issues of men, correct? Yes, so the, the HRC is the Human Rights Commission. So we, uh, in, in context, recently there was a big revamp of our family violence uh, system in New Zealand and the Human Rights Commission made a submission about, you know, the human rights implications of, you know, the what the government was planning to do. And in the uh, like, and they made several recommendations, but the one of those recommendations was more shelters for male perpetrators. Currently, New Zealand has no shelters for male victims, two shelters for male perpetrators, and one shelter for pet of female victims. So we have it's a ridiculous situation where we value the pets more than we value male victims. So the pets? Yeah, yeah. So if a female victim has leaves her home because her her partner is being abusive. Yeah. Um, oh, so you're saying pets? She can put. Yeah, she can put her her dog, accent, for example. Right. She can take her dog to a special a special kennel, to, so that the male partner doesn't abuse the pet to get back at the woman. Right, so there's this that's a service offered, but we don't have any places for male victims to go. This seems to really play into this whole idea of male perpetrators, female victims, because from the statistics of domestic violence, it looks to be a pretty symmetrical problem that females and males inflict domestic violence on each other in pretty similar rates. Is that what you've seen? In large population based studies that's covering all forms of violence, that's what we see. Gotcha. Um, and so, for example, just just to, to show a little New Zealand pride here, we have the Dunedin Longitudinal Study, which is the gold standard of sociological research 
And what they've been doing, they've been following the same 1,000 people who were born in 1974, I think, in, in Dunedin, which is a town in New Zealand. They've been following them since then, and every few years they bring them back in and they do a whole bunch of research on them. And what this means is that they can draw really good conclusions about causes and effects because they saw the same person when they were three year old, three years old as when they were 30, um, and they can follow, follow that through. So it's brilliant research. And one of the things they did was they asked the participants about see, perpetration and victimization in terms of partner violence, and they also asked the partners about their use and perpetration of partner violence. So you've got two, two really important data points. So you've got a man who may admit to being a perpetrator, and you've also got the, the experience of that woman in that relationship about that perpetration. And what they found was that there was pretty good agreement between each partner about the violence that occurred, which way it was going and who was doing it. I mean, it wasn't exactly the same because no one wants to admit to being violent. So that it's so it's really, really good data. The data shows that approximately the same amount of men and women use violence in their relationship. Mm. I mean, so that's that's really solid yeah. data. When you start looking at the different kinds of violence, then you can start to get more deviation. For example, we know women are more likely to use weapons. Mm. to account for the fact that they're not as strong. <laughs> right. And we know that men are going to do more damage because they're stronger. <laughs> right. um, although it's not as great, it's not as great as many people think. As one would imagine. Um, there's that one really good study, but that's only one of... That study was included in a meta-analysis of 1,700 studies, um, in which all largely agreed that violence in relationships uh, occurs... Men and women do it approximately the same rate. Gotcha. You know, unfortunately, I've only written, uh, sorry, I've only read one of your letters to the New Zealand Minister of Justice. But right before we started this episode, you pointed out you've written multiple, up to eight letters to the uh, minister. To, to, um, not just to the minister. So I've made submissions to the United Nations. Um, I've written to the Human Rights Commission. Cool. Uh, to the Minister of Justice, right. the Health Minister, the Education Minister, so on and so What forth. are you trying to achieve here? My main focus is discrimination against men is removed from law and policy. So that's the first, the first kind of main thing. So we have a law in New Zealand called Male Assaults Female, which explicitly discriminates against men in the, in the law. And there's about five or six other laws which explicitly discriminated against men as well. So the first step is let's get rid of those discriminatory laws and discriminatory policies. And then the second step is to ensure that men's needs are met. Even if a policy is not explicitly discriminatory, the way it's carried out can be discriminatory. For example, if you put your disability services on the second floor up a flight of stairs, you are not going to be helping people in wheelchairs. So even though there might be no explicit discrimination, it's still worth looking at situations where, in my area of focus, is where men are effectively discriminated against. So we need to afford men the same flexibility. Um, I guess the, the main point is that 
you can't just say that your service works for men because there's no explicit discrimination. You know, we actually have to make sure that it is working for men. And, and this, this applies to everybody, right? I, my focus is on men. We need the same, same thing for women. We can't, we can't just pretend that because somewhere in our documentation it says this service is for men and women, you know, oh, job done. No, that's not job done. We actually have to make sure that the service that we're pro providing is working as w well for men and for women. Right. I'm wondering, have you gotten any feedback from these letters? Has anyone written you back or acknowledged your letters? I have received feedback and it's been pretty lackluster, really. <laughs> so I asked the Human Rights Commission to explicitly recognise the rights of men and boys, um, because th the way they're set up at the moment is they have a women's rights commissioner and they also do regular reviews of women's rights. I, I think it's every four or five years. So I said, can you please explicitly include men and boys in the same way that you do for women and girls? Um, and they wrote back and said, we are not going to be changing our policy. We think what we're doing is sufficient. So that, that was disappointing. <laughs> that... And I, I, actually, I, I think that that means that they're actually breaking the law. Or violating human rights. And, and, and violating human rights, yeah. Mm. Um, but it's, it's really difficult <laughs> when, 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 when I say the Human Rights Commission is violating human rights, the Human <laughs> Rights Commission can say, oh, we're the experts and we looked at ourselves and no, we're fine. Looking from the top down, you know, it seems like we've established that the Human Rights Commission doesn't really care about men's rights or the Human Rights Commission doesn't really care about men. Feminists don't really care about men. Society doesn't care too much for men. And I believe that men don't even care that much about men. And this, this is the empathy gap that we're talking about, okay. that I talked about before. Right. And I should have followed up on that before, but why do you think we care less about men? Was it something biological because we've been historically more in power or because we're physically stronger? What do you think it is? I think the underlying thing is that men are not as important to the survival of the species in terms of reproduction. If half of the men were wiped out of the world, were just wiped out and disappeared, you know, Thanos snaps his fingers and half the, men, <laughs> half the men, only men disappeared, right? Um, half the men disappeared. Then the population would recover in a couple of generations because the bottleneck is women. Then can we even attempt to solve the empathy gap if you believe it's mostly due to biological reasons? Biological reasons. Well, we, we, do, we do lots to overcome our biological limitations. I mean, that's the whole, the whole purpose of society is to, you know, work together to overcome our limitations. I think there's a lot that we can do. I mean, I think there's that the underlying biological factor, but uh, there's also there's also social factors that affect it as well. So, for example, when the kill all men hashtag is trending on Twitter, that doesn't help the empathy gap. What does help the empathy gap, in your opinion? Activism? Raising awareness? There's always going to be some part of it there because of the biology. 
Um, I think we need to have formal mechanisms to make sure that we are taking care of men. We can't just magically hope that men get taken care of somehow. We can't say that, oh, well, you know, the majority of politicians are men, therefore men must be being taken care of. I, I, I don't think that's true. We need to actually say right down somewhere, we need to take care of men and we need to take care of women. Mm. And we need to have some kind of checks and balances in place to make sure that we're doing it. Right. Following up on what you said about Kulo men and hashtags and potentially the role <laughs> of the internet in the modern age, don't you think that some of these sub-movements and these sentiments that they create works against the empathy gap? I mean, the whole concept of male privilege and patriarchy constantly being discussed it definitely works against the empathy gap yeah i've seen studies that show that talking about privilege and the 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 study i'm thinking of was talking about white privilege what and rather than helping people empathize with black people more what it does is it reduces the amount of empathy people have for white people when we see a white person who is a homeless white person, if we think white people have privilege, then we think, well, that person had privilege and can't even get their shit together. <laughs> Another study that I think think of is they looked at people who believed that the world was divided into oppressors and oppressed, and they found that people who have that kind of belief struggle to be unbiased about people who they think are the oppressors. If if you believe that men oppress women, it's much more likely that you will not have a unbiased opinion about men, especially about men's suffering. Right. I've heard that quote that if you believe you're oppressed, you'll spend your whole life looking for your oppressor. Yes, is the answer to your question. <laughs> when people believe that they are oppressed, they are likely to see a lot of false positives it's difficult because when people are oppressed <laughs> there'll be a lot of uh, true positives won't there right yeah that's an interesting phenomenon in general do you think that the men's rights movement is empathetic or cares about feminist issues it depends what you mean by a feminist issue let's let's uncomplicate it a little bit and talk about women's issues rather than feminist issues i think that a strong feeling of wanting equality in the men's rights movement. But there's also a lot of frustration that uh, women's issues get more airtime than men's issues. Like sometimes I catch myself going, oh, okay, here we go again. (laughs) When are we going to talk about men's reproductive rights? When are we going to talk about how a man can be raped by a woman and then be forced to pay child support to the rapist? Most of the people in the men's rights movement strongly believe in equality between men and women. Um, But that doesn't mean that they're not frustrated by the way the discussion is going. Do you think some of the critiques of the men's rights movement is pretty fair? Uh, One of the ones I was hearing about a lot last night when I was listening to a podcast called Ladylike, um, they had a sociologist on. And a lot of it was associating the men's rights movement to incels. And if I'm being mm-hmm. frank with you, the subreddit men's rights, it has, I don't want to say a substantial, but it definitely has some 
visibility oh, yeah. on dating yes, issues or lonely Reddit, Reddit shut down the incel subreddit and the MGTOW subreddit. Men going their own men, way, sorry. Yeah. Men going their own way. Let's back up a little bit. Incels are involuntary celibates, just for everyone listening. Yep. So they are people who would like to be in a relationship, but for various reasons aren't. For example, a disabled man may find it particularly difficult to meet someone and, and start a relationship. So that's the broader meaning of incels, but it's often to refer to certain internet forums where kind of the, the extreme, you know, extremely bitter people who can't find relationships sort of hang out and have a bit of an echo chamber. So there's, there's incels, MGTOW, or men going their own way, uh, men who have said to themselves, I don't want to be in a relationship with a woman because the, the, the bias in the family courts and divorce law, those two things, if I, if I do the calculations, it's, it's just too much of a risk to get into a relationship with, with a woman where I might end up losing my kids. Uh, you know, I might, I might end up in a really bad financial situation. Mm. So too much trouble. I'm just going to step away from that, work on myself, do things that I enjoy. Those two subreddits focus on relationships and stuff. When Reddit closed down those subreddits, they sort of flowed into men's rights. You know, the, the MGTOW men wanted to talk about bias in family courts. We talk about bias in family courts next next top over. So we have seen an increase in talking about uh, relationship issues. What you're saying is there's definitely an overlap between men going their own way in men's rights, but do you also think there's an overlap between the incel subculture? And to elaborate on your definition of incel, I believe when we when mainstream media talks about incel, it's not just people who are your average person that wants to be in a relationship yeah. but can't. But it's, we're talking yeah, when, about when, extreme subcultures of men who are... Yeah, we're talking about... That. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're talking about when the term incel is used in the media, they mean the men who frequent incel forums. So do you think that the ones that we're talking about, which are the ones that frequent incel forums, have some overlap with men's rights? Not, not really. They are not writing to their MPs about <laughs> domestic violence laws. <laughs> right. You know, they're not trying to get reform in, in family courts. The men's, the men's rights subreddit is concerned about men being lonely and, and loneliness and social isolation is as bad for you as smoking. We, we are concerned about men who are lonely and suffering. Um, we're concerned about the guys on these forums who, you know, have gone to a very dark place and surrounded themselves in an e echo chamber. We, we want those guys to feel better and have good, thriving, successful lives, you know. Mm. So there's overlap and that kind of thing and that we are concerned about it. But the incels aren't concerned about men's rights issues. Right. Yeah. To be honest, I believe if you're an incel of the kind that we're talking about that has frequented these forums, you're almost... You know, I don't want to say you're too far gone because you can always come back, but your mentality is so extreme. And just to give the viewers and you a 
brief overview of my experience diving into the insults forums. They are full of very angry and sad men. And yes. their anger is incorrectly placed at the hands of women. Why don't women want to have sex with me? I have done all this. Uh, women, you know, only go after chats yeah, yes. and we have to look smacks. Yeah. And to be honest, I have, I do have sympathy for them. It's yeah. very depressing yeah. that some men have, have gone all the way there. Talking about incels, talking about red pill, talking about lonely and sad men, I think it's natural to bring up certain figures that have arisen recently. Yeah. What do you think of Andrew Tate and his immense popularity? I mean, I don't follow Andrew Tate. I hear everything about Andrew Tate second or third hand. So that's kind of my context. We have a situation where a lot of young men do not have fathers. And then they go to school and they don't have any male teachers. So there's a great big hole for male role models. In addition to that, I think that people who are model male role models get a lot of criticism. The only type of male role models that are going to survive are the people who don't care what people think. <laughs> people who are financially secure, who, who aren't afraid of getting, you know, losing their job. People who, you know, have a lot of self-confidence in themselves that, you know, they're doing the right thing. So, so effectively, what we've done is we've we've culled a whole section of male role models that we used to have, and what's grown in its place is a symptom of that. Given a better role model than Andrew Tate, I think Andrew Andrew Tate would be a minor figure, right? Mm. I th I think his influence. If you had someone who was talking to young men and said things like work hard, you know, believe in yourself, go to the gym, things like, you know, masculinity is good, embrace it. Andrew Tate's influence would diminish pretty quickly. Mm. Jordan Peterson, I think is a very reasonable alternative figure. Probably that didn't trend as, as much as Andrew Tate, but has been consistently in, in the limelight. Do you know much about Jordan Peterson? Do you follow him at all? Um, I did go see him when he came to and I also came away from that thinking, well, I'm glad I spent the money so that I wouldn't regret not going, but it wasn't as good as I'd hoped. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> um, I think he, he's definitely more positive than than Andrew Tate. I think he's kind of the dad figure that that a lot of young men are missing. But I think I think he's gotten a bit more like the grumpy grumpy granddad <laughs> recently. Yeah. Um, I think um, it's harder to relate to being such a such an academic, such a scholar. Yeah, he's 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 a bit more distant, isn't he? He's mm. he's not. Can I imagine going over to his house and hanging out? Mm, no, <laughs> that would be, you know, it'd be weird. It'd be like, would I feel guilty about not having cleaned my room? Right. <laughs> he he's more of a, a philosopher. He's he's the the old man on the mountain kind yeah. of figure isn't he he's not quite the father figure that that i was kind of thinking of yeah mm. do you think the rise of andrew tate is indicative that there is a growing rift between the genders because i think it would be hard to find anyone that would outrightly say hey i support andrew tate but the vast majority the vast vast majority of his supporters are men and i would say basically all of the women i've talked to about andrew tate 
hate him. For Andrew Tate to be the most trending figure in 2022, essentially, yeah. doesn't that show the genders are attacking each other more or care less about each other? I think there's, there's definitely a rift between the genders. I think a lot of that comes from not listening to each other. <laughs> this is something I actually learned from Clementine Ford. Do you know? Do you know Clementine Ford? I don't. She's a radical feminist from Australia who has famously used the hashtag kill all men and said things like the coronavirus isn't killing men fast enough. Um, so she's very provocative. I remember sitting in the audience, audience listening to her and thinking, this woman has not listened to men. And, and of course, and then my reflection on that is, have I listened to women? I think we're way too quick to talk in than to listen to people. In the modern age, it's yeah, communication yeah. has shifted into some less productive format. Well, what what I mean is that like one of the frustrating things for me is when I hear things like the only emotion men are allowed to feel is anger. You know, I hear from feminists when they're talking like toxic masculinity and and things like that. And my response to that is. Have you have you talked to any men? Have you seen the emotions that men go through after their team wins a football game? There's all joy and excitement and you know, well when they're losing there's there's like, you know, there's frustration and and there's a whole range of emotions that men feel, but we get it condensed down into this like little soundbite meme that men can only feel anger. Like, so, so, let, let me just go on a little bit of a, a rant. Another yeah. thing that really frustrates me is that, and a similar thing is that there's this kind of expectation that where, where women say, women are afraid to go walk on the street at night. And then there's the assumption that men aren't. But <laughs> when you talk to men, it's like, yeah, no, I'm really, I'm concerned about walking, the, you know, at, around the streets at night. I take precautions when I'm out there. It's, so it's like there's this miscommunication has happened and we're talking about like these little in sound bites rather than listening to people. Right. It's fascinating. You know, how, 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 do, how do I know what women are like? Well, I went on the internet and I looked at some memes. <laughs> That's not going to cut it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely believe that the internet has created echo chambers and instead of you know, people think that the internet has allowed us to communicate much more effectively, which in a way it has, but it's allowed us to jump into it. It's very hard to find an echo chamber of men in real life. It would be hard to find a group of 40,000 men um, in an auditorium just preoccupied about men's issues. But on the internet, yeah, you can find very homogenous groups on the internet. Um, yeah, I mean, my my personal experience is is that it's been really important to me to listen to people with different opinions. I'm a better person for it. I've, I feel like I've grown as a person from listening to other people. And, and that's in, I bring that to the men's rights subreddit. That's one of the things I was like, okay, well, we're not going to ban people who would disagree with us. Hmm. People will report posts from come to the subreddit to tell us we're wrong. And I'm like, no, no, that those kind of posts are fine. We need to hear people tell us that we're wrong 
That's a great attitude. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, from the research of doing these two episodes, feminism and men's rights, I've been subscribed to both subreddits. And I definitely agree and disagree with different content on both subreddits. Did you get a chance? You did get a chance to watch the episode with Martha Rampton. Yes, I yes, think I that did. you two would actually get along quite well. I feel like there was actually a lot of overlap there. What, what yeah, I was, I was really pleased. I was really pleased that she said she didn't like the term toxic masculinity. That was that was good because I don't like it either, and I ask people not to use it. Everyone out there, stop using that term. I don't like it. People don't like it. They ad- misunderstand it. All it does is cause trouble. Stop using it, <laughs> please. <laughs> right. So I was happy to hear that. I mean, obviously there are a few things that I I disagreed with, with what she was saying. So, uh, for example, she was talking about the patriarchy and there the being a pyramid and that when you delineate any level on the pyramid, then men are always above women on the pyramid. Do you recall that? Yeah, Something she said like that? that the majority of the time, that is just how it falls to be. I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think that, for example, homeless people, mm-hmm. if we look at homeless people, then we can say like, well, there's more men living on the street men die living on the street at much higher rates than women so when we're looking at the like the bottom layer of the pyramid men are on the bottom mm. um, statistics would show that on the extreme ends of the spectrum men dominate so we're yeah. the most poor but we're also the most rich we're also on yes. average we're not too much more aggressive than women but on the extreme ends we're extremely aggressive um, yeah, so yeah. that's that is a fact. I think there's an underlying kind of theory called male variability, mm. where women bunch closer to the average, and men are wider. So men have more things on the extremes. In uh, the previous episode with feminism, we did talk about how it differs around the world, and my experience of men's rights is it's pretty anglosphere focused and when i say anglosphere i mean the united states canada australia new zealand uh and the uk have you seen men's rights across the globe is it even Uh, as relevant it's it's big in india it's big in india okay um in india has some messed up gender relations um on both like it's bad for women and Mm. it's bad for men (laughs) in the Caribbean or Caribbean, there is quite a big kind of men's rights movement. That's where uh, the founder of International Men's Day lives. 19th of November for everyone listening, that's International Men's Day. Men's rights is, is quite broad. You get different political versions of it, right? You get traditional conservatives who are really concerned about family and fathers and that sort of thing. And so certain that kind of thrives in, in certain more kind of traditionally orientated cultures. Um, and then you get like the more left-wing workers' rights kind of men's rights flavor. I mean, my kind of focus on human rights is, is that more left-wing thing. We did a survey on the men's rights subreddit oh, probably about three years ago now, and we found that the politics of the people on the subreddit was pretty evenly well normally distributed across left and right Mm. so there's like kind of a wide range and if you're looking for so in some countries you'll get a more like focused on on fathers and families and 
and in, in other countries, it, I mean, it depends on, on the culture. Big in India, um, I know there's stuff going on in the Caribbean. And they're all the, focused um, on different issues, right? It's more fragmented. When it's yeah, yeah. There's yeah. we 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 don't have we don't have a UN women to to kind of consolidate and and point people in in one direction. I'm going to jump into some lightning questions. Ian, are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, lightning question one: Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I I don't do New Year's resolutions. I think that if you identify an area that needs to change in your life, then <laughs> you should not wait to New Year. It's got to be now. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be now, but you should put off, putting it off probably means you're not going to do it. Mm. Question two, what are your plans with the men's rights movement in the coming years? What do you have coming up for you? In a couple of weeks, the New Zealand government is doing a consultation for their review of human rights in New Zealand that they will present to the UN. So that's what I'm going to be focused on in the next couple of weeks. Um, I Thanks. am going to go along to that meeting and I'll probably get like two minutes <laughs> to say something. So basically, basically, it's a real life tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you speak quickly. Be concise, yeah. huh? Okay, very cool. Let us know how that goes. Uh, lightning question three, what was your favorite movie, TV show, paper reading on men's rights? What really got you into it? I am really appreciative of Cassie J's Red Pill documentary. I'm pretty sure that it's available on YouTube, the Red Pill movie or Red Pill documentary by Cassie J. She actually made a post in the men's rights subreddit ages ago for a Kickstarter for post-production funds which i submitted to we were all very nervous about <laughs> about oh. supporting her because because we weren't sure whether it would be like a hit piece or not um but we were all very pleased it was a good reflection of the movement that was um, so I yeah one of the most influential pieces of media that came out for men's rights i believe yeah it was it was big yeah i yeah. recommend everyone everyone see it Mm. I will also add to that recommendation, and I also think people should read Of Boys and Men by Richard Reeves, which is also very enlightening. Um, and final question, do you have anything left to say to the viewers slash listeners? Anything at all? Anything at all. <laughs> I would say that work to improve your own life. Take care of yourself, and that will make the world a better place, slowly. If you make yourself better, then the world is a better place than it would have been. Wow. Very wholesome. Thank you, Ian, <laughs> for joining us. I apologize for not being a misogynistic, neckbeard, men's rights activist. <laughs> I'm glad you weren't. I'm truly glad you weren't. Hey, Ian, it's been fantastic having you on the show. To the viewers and listeners, thank you for joining us on another episode of Overthinking the Modern World. And we'll catch you on the next one. See ya. Thank you very much.